You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of the City of Man podcast. I am Coyle Neal, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. And I am Edward Song, Scholar-in-Residence at Westmont College in Santa Barbara. The City of Man is the latest podcast in the Christian Humanist Radio Network, and it is dedicated to examining political life from the vantage of traditional Christian conviction. Yeah, both Coyle and I are Christians. We both identify as evangelicals. We are also both professors who study politics or political theory, though we have different perspectives on these issues. Coyle is a conservative, while I am a progressive. Yeah, and that diversity should really tell you something about what we hope to accomplish in this podcast. Uh, We would very much like to see Christians, especially American Christians, do a better job of thinking about politics. Uh, Historically, especially in the past two centuries, we've really dropped the ball on that. We hope to make small contributions through this forum to, to offsetting that trend, which isn't to say that our goal is for everyone who listens to us to end up agreeing with us. It's just to say that we'd like agreement or disagreement to be based on careful reflection about government, philosophy, theology, uh, and carried along by civilized and charitable discourse, uh, even with those we think are wrong. Uh, So I guess that's a sort of a second goal that we have in in this podcast is that in addition to Christians thinking well about government, uh, we'd like to see us actually talking well about it also. Uh, We think we all have a tendency to demonize those we we disagree with before we actually hear what they have to say. Uh, When we do this, we we not only ignore the true things they have to say, but we tell a lie about God's character. Uh, As Christians, we were God's enemies and he died in our place. Will we really not even listen to those we disagree with politically? And if our answer to that is no, well, then I think we have to ask whether or not we're really believers in the first place. Uh, so those are our goals uh, in this podcast. Ed, did I, did I miss anything there? No, that's about, that's about right. Well, excellent. We, uh, we do ultimately want to talk about something specific in this first podcast. Uh, eventually, we want to just briefly touch on the question, what is politics? Uh, but first, maybe we should say something about ourselves. Uh, Ed, why don't you uh, lead us off? Uh, who are you and why should we listen to what you have to say about politics? Um, yeah, that second question is harder than the first, but I'll, I'll try to say something about it as well. Um, So I am a professor of philosophy here at Westmont College. I suppose my official title here is Scholar-in-Residence in in the Philosophy Department. I teach and write on matters of moral and political philosophy. Westmont is a Christian liberal arts college here in Santa Barbara. Uh, And though I've uh, now been here for three years. Prior to coming here, I was um, an associate professor at Louisiana State University. And uh, before, and that was my first job coming out of graduate school at the University of Virginia. We were down in Louisiana for seven years. Okay. And uh, do you have any specific interests uh, that you, that you focus on in your, your professional scholarship? Yeah. So the, um, the main question that I write on in my scholarly work is writing about questions about what justifies the 
power, the coercive power of the state to exercise coercive control over its citizens. So this is like a very basic question, obviously, in thinking about political morality and, and gets at a central issue that political philosophers think about. Um, the, the thing that defines the nature of the state is that it has a monopoly over the legitimate use of force over its citizens. A lot of people take that for granted. Um, philosophers like to ask the question about what it is that justifies that power, whether or not citizens have political obligations, natural political obligations to obey their states, or at least certain kinds of states. And um, the uh, mo I, most, most people think the answer to that question is yes. The interesting thing that a lot of political philosophers think about the question is that it's actually harder to justify the answer, that answer than, than most people think. So I write a lot about those issues, though one of the interesting things about coming to a school like Westmont is that I have the opportunity to think uh, more theologically about a lot of these questions. So I'm trying to spend a little bit more time thinking about issues of political theology. Um, oh, I suppose in addition to all of that, I'm also really interested in questions of distributive justice, thinking about what justice demands with regard to how um, goods like wealth are distributed within a society, within a single domestic society, and then also globally. Very good. Uh, and uh, you live out uh, in California, right? Where Westmont College is. Uh, That's right. Uh, any family members you'd like to mention while we're... While we're oh, yeah. So my wife is also a professor here at Westmont. She is the chair of the sociology department. And then we have two kids, um, an 11-year-old girl and a six-year-old boy. Very good. And uh, as I said, I'm an assistant professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri, uh, where I live with my uh, one-year-old uh, son and my wife, Alexis, who regular Christian Humanist Network listeners should know from the Christian Feminist podcast mm -hmm. uh, and the Firefly episode of the Christian Humanist podcast, where Alexis acted as the voice of reason in pointing out how terrible a person Malcolm Reynolds is, which I just think is very important to re-emphasize that fact. Uh, I'm afraid I didn't understand anything that you just said in the last 10 seconds. That's you. You are missing very, very little. Uh, that's that's OK. Uh, Firefly is not Joss Whedon's greatest work. And I know that we're going to get angry emails over that, but that's OK. <laughs> uh, I, will, I will stand on that rock. Uh, I, uh, I got my my degree at the University of Wyoming, my undergrad degree at the University of Wyoming, uh, my Ph.D. in political science at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., uh, where I wrote my dissertation on Jonathan Edwards uh, and his political philosophy. That is the theologian, uh, not the politician, the musician or the psychic, uh, although I think a dissertation on the psychic might have been much more interesting to write. Uh, I obviously know about the politician. I did not know that there was a psychic. By yeah, if, if you want to talk to dead people, Jonathan Edwards is the place to go. So uh, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll note that in my uh, address book. Right, right. Uh, I, I feel like he has a TV show, but it's been so long since I've, I've followed the pop culture. I, I couldn't say if it's still on the air or not. You know, after this podcast takes off coil, we should start the Christian psychic podcast you know we really should run that up the chain i, I feel like I the christian humanist would idea. definitely support that yeah i think that's a tremendous idea <laughs> uh let's see my, my specific interests i uh I, I try to be pretty varied I, actually i picked politics as a as a major because it kind of lets you do everything uh so of, of course i had my, my dissertation topic but 
in general, I, I tend to be sort of a, a mile wide and an, and an inch deep in what I'm interested in, uh, for better or worse. Uh, the downside of, of that is I haven't really dug into any one area other than my dissertation topic, uh, but I've tried to read a lot in a lot of areas. So we'll, we'll have different approaches. Uh, Ed and I both, uh, uh, both sort of come at the discipline in, in very different ways, and that I'm sure will come out across the, uh, uh, across the podcast. Uh, Ed, uh, tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, your spiritual life. Uh, what's, what's your, your spiritual biography as it were? Yeah. So there is like the, you know, the, uh, 10 minute version of this story and then the three hour version. Um, I'm assuming you want the three hour version, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we've got time. It's a podcast, right? Uh, no. So, um, I grew up going to church in like a mainline Presbyterian church in Lynchburg, Virginia. Um, went, went to youth group, went to church, not every Sunday, but, you know, relatively regularly would have called and described myself as a Christian. I, I, I don't think there was any point in my childhood growing up in which I wouldn't have said that, though my understanding of what that meant was extraordinarily superficial um, I'm, I'm Korean American. Uh, we were, gro- uh, though we were growing up in the South. Um, everybody in the South is is a Christian. It's just something that you take for granted. You know, up until uh, my senior year of high school, about in which uh, I just started having a lot of questions about uh, about the claims that Christianity made and what kind of sense that it made. Uh, I had one of my best friends in high school was um, a, an extremely articulate, thoughtful, um, fun atheist. And so we would start to joust and I, I would start to have questions. It's like, yeah, what, you know, uh, how is it that like the really good Buddhist guy um, who knows as much about Jesus as I know about the Buddha um, why is it that on a traditional Christian understanding, you know, and, and that guy is a better guy than me by a lot, you know, um, why, why is it that, that on a traditional understanding, you know, he's going to hell? That doesn't make sense to me. So those questions started bouncing around in my head. Um, and at the same time, uh, <clears throat> I'm applying to college and, uh, uh, I really wanted to go to Yale. Um, my brother, my brother went to Yale, and um, gr- growing up, I, I just high school was fine, um, but I was just looking for a, a different kind of experience, looking to sort of escape Central Virginia and having a different kind of experience um, by going to a good traditionally Christian college like Yale. That's exactly right. right. Um, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, good Yale man. Yes, um, indeed. And uh, I, yeah, so I was just looking for a very different kind of experience. I wanted to go to a very different kind of world. I was hoping to escape. Um, and I was devout enough to pray fervently about that, up to, in, including being willing to make a deal. And so I used to pray, God, if I get into Yale, if you get me into Yale, I promise I will do more to seek you out when I get there. And so I never forget, I remember it like it was yesterday, coming home from soccer practice in, I mean, I guess it would have been April, right? That's when college admission letters go out, March or April, coming home from soccer practice, being the first one home, 
pulling up to the mailbox in my beat up 1971 Volkswagen Super Beetle, uh, opening the mailbox and having the three letters from Harvard, Yale and Princeton and opened the Harvard letter first. And it was thin and it was, thank you very much for applying. We had a very competitive application class, blah, 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 opening up the Princeton letter and it was thin and, you know, thank you very much for applying very competitive class, blah, blah, blah. And then opening up the Yale letter, which was thick, and getting the letter that said, congratulations, you have been admitted to the Yale class of 1994. And being thrilled, but at the same time, there was a very real sense of foreboding. Because even I, as bad a Christian as I was, knew that you couldn't welch on a deal with God. And so for me, there literally was this sense of, wow, this is amazing. This is so exciting. And also, oh man, now I'm going to have to do the religion thing. So that happens. And all these doubts are creeping up at the same time. So when I went to college, I, my number one goal was I'm going to spend some time. I'm going to do the religion thing. I'm going to figure out whether or not God exists, uh, whether the story that Christianity tells about God is the correct story. If it's not true, then I'm not going to waste my time. Why would you waste your time? But if I do think that it's true, there's no more important truth in the world. And um, I'm going to make that matter in my life. Um, I happened to have a friend in, in high school. Like the last thing that she said to me before I went to college was, hey, you should check out InterVarsity when you get there. They're a great Christian group. And I had literally never heard the words InterVarsity before or thought that that was like, you know, intramural soccer or something. Right. Um, and so got there, we like went to the, the, the student activity fair and um, saw the university group and, you know, and they were super friendly and um, boisterous and fun and was the lone Christian group whose name I recognized. So um, I was like, Hey, I'll sign up for a Bible study. And then slowly over the course of my freshman year, um, it made sense. And, uh, you know, and, and so this, this is the part of the story that sort of makes the story swell out to three hours. But I, I responded to a classic altar call in a spring evangelistic event. I mean, actually up to that point, I would have sort of said that I was a Christian and I went to this evangelistic event, the, um, a bunch of Christian groups invited Dave Wilkerson Oh, sure, sure. Speak. Oh, is he good? So the, you know him. The cross and the switchblade guy. Exactly, yeah. exactly. There's a terrible so, movie about him. Exactly. Ex yeah. So uh, I'm so excited that, that, that you know who that is. So Dave Wilkerson, for those who don't know, was a – you probably know more about him than I do, Coyle. Oh, man, but, it's been years since I've seen or read anything. Yeah, so he was a pastor at a small southern church and felt called by God to go to New York City and start a church on Broadway. But like a, a, a gang church on Broadway. Yeah, it was yeah. Like... So he got to New York and then immediately got pulled into into meet uh, into ministry to to gangs in New York City. This is back when I, uh, younger listeners are listening to this and thinking there were gangs on Broadway, like <laughs> in front of the, the the Lion King studio. I never, I've never right. seen them like on those ABC shots of Times Square pre Rudy Giuliani. There, New York City was awful. That's yeah, pre the Disneyfication of Times Square. Right. Um back when that was a rough and tumble part of New York City with strip joints and 
anyways um yeah so he, he went to new york city started started the started the church was doing this amazing ministry to to gangs right this um preacher from some small southern town anyways they invite uh, a bunch of christian groups invited them up to to yale to speak um i was sitting there they had brought up some he had brought up some special singer um who um looked like tammy faye baker <laughs> big, like just an unbelievable amount of makeup was it tammy faye baker it, it wasn't but for all intents and purposes it was her twin sister and and you know just amazing hair that was sort of architectural in its structure um and you know she sang and led worship and uh, i you know i was sitting next next to my intervarsity staff worker and he tells me he was mortified by the whole event just absolutely mortified that they would bring um you know it it wasn't it wasn't a yale event <laughs> bringing dave wilkerson and this and this worship singer um from the 700 club like wasn't um wasn't didn't fit into the yale aesthetic so he was mortified through the whole event and i'm just kind of sitting there um yeah he you know he gave this talk on the hound of heaven um and i was just sort of sitting there and all of a sudden i felt like um my my heart was strangely warmed and there was an altar call and I was like, I have to go down. Um, yeah. So that, that was the moment in which I suppose I officially became a Christian. Um, that was probably longer than 10 minutes, but definitely less than three hours. There's a lot more that one can say, but that sort of sums up the, um, you know, the classic testimony story, I guess, that evangelicals tell each other. Sure. Uh, how about you, Coyle? Um, did you grow up going to church? Uh, I did, uh, although uh, not not because my parents were, were believers, although though eventually they, they did come to the faith. Uh, I would uh, ride into church with my grandmother, uh, who would drop me off at a little country church in rural Montana. So I grew up right on kind of the Montana-Wyoming border, uh, where there is no cultural Christianity, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, the American West is not exactly a bastion of uh, people who identify as believers, uh, mm -hmm. at least depending on what part of the West you're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, so my, my grandmother would drop me off at this little church where my aunt was teaching Sunday school, and then she would go to another church uh, that she had been a member of. Uh, so I, I said the prayer, uh, said, said the, uh, uh, made the prayer, uh, was baptized. Uh, I'm pretty sure I believed when I was six or seven years old. Uh, if you'd asked me if I was a Christian, I would have said yes. Uh, I probably could have given some kind of stumbling explanation of what that meant. Uh, but it, it really, uh, I don't know exactly uh, if this is when I got saved or if it's just when I started paying more attention. Uh, but my, my, my testimony beyond that is focused around three books. So in a high school humanities class, uh, we were assigned Dante's Inferno, which if you want to put the fear of hell into a teenager, that is literally the book to use uh, because it was absolutely terrifying. So I read uh, Dante's Inferno. The, the Puritans would say I, I came under conviction. Uh, that is, I, I, I developed sort of a, a low-lying sense of guilt and fear uh, over knowing that my, my sins were real and they were bad uh, and they deserved a lot of punishment. Uh, and uh, that, that just kind of hung in the back of my mind for the next few years, really, really until I went to grad school in D.C., uh, and started attending uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, uh, which, will, which will mean a lot to a very small number of people. 
there's, there's only one Southern, or at the time there's only one Southern Baptist church in DC. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I started attending that. Uh, and while I was attending, uh, a pastor took me aside and uh, had me start reading uh, with him through John Owen's Mortification of Sin. Uh, so a good classic Puritan work. Uh, and then at the same time, uh, another friend that I'd made there uh, started meeting up with me regularly. And we read through Gerhard Forty's uh, On Being a Theologian of the Cross. Uh, so a good classic Lutheran work. Uh, and between those two books uh, and the vibrant church community at Capitol Hill Baptist, uh, I shifted from being someone who who sort of reflexively agreed with what I'd heard uh, from uh, uh, from the Bible and from, from Christians uh, to being someone who actually cared about what the Bible says about who God is and, and what he's done for us and how that should affect our lives, uh, mm -hmm. which is, is not to say that, you know, I'm a perfect Christian or have perfect doctrine or anything like that. Uh, it is to say that there is a, a difference in there somewhere. Uh, now, at what point sort of along that timeline would I say I became a Christian? Uh, I don't know. It really could have been anywhere. Uh, but I, I definitely began to take more notice of it uh, in grad school, uh, living in BC, uh, attending this church and, and uh, paying attention to sort of the, uh, the, the great classic works of, of Christian thought and Christian life. Uh, so that's also shorter than three hours. Hopefully that's okay. Hmm. Uh, uh, let's see. So given that we've made such truck uh, about us being Christians, uh, I think we, uh, we, we need to talk sort of intellectually and, uh, uh, spiritually here. So starting with this, this politics business, uh, uh what is politics? Uh, unless we have anything to add about the spiritual biography stuff. Uh, no, I think the, um, the five people who are still listening to our podcast, are probably well familiar with our stories. Yes, and, and thank um, you for listening. We, we appreciate your endurance. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Yeah, right, um, right. Uh, well, Sequoia, why don't you walk us through this foundational question, uh, what is politics? Yeah, so it's it's interesting because politics is one of the few disciplines, sort of like philosophy, where where what is it is actually part of the subject matter, right? Uh, uh, it, it, it's frustrating when you're trying to explain this to students, but it, it really is uh, – uh, something that we we can't always identify, but you know maybe we know it when we see it. If I can mm -hmm. drop that reference. Uh, so my my freshman level explanation of what politics is uh, is that it is the exercise of power uh, by the community that forces us to do things that we don't want to do, or or stops us from doing things that that we do want to do. Uh, so if we just all agreed about everything all the time. We we wouldn't need politics. We we wouldn't need a government to sort of mediate between differing worldviews, differing opinions, and so on. Uh, but because we don't all agree all the time, we, we need that external force, that, that external power to step in and intervene in our day-to-day -day affairs. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the city can tell me that I, I have to mow my lawn before the grass gets too tall uh, or else they will use force to punish me. Uh, that force can uh, obviously is, is not going to mean they're going to take me out and beat me. It, it means they're going to give me a fine or, or jail time or I don't I mow my lawn, so I don't actually know what the punishment is. Uh, that is not one that I've ever tested, uh, but they can they can stop me or they can force me to do something that I don't want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and the city can tell me that I'm not allowed to build a, a 50 foot wall around my house, even if I really, really want to. So I don't have to see these kids with their you know, baggy hair and uh, baggy pants and long hair and all of that stuff. Uh, sitting on my porch grousing about kids these days is a favorite activity of mine, as, as I'm sure listeners will quickly learn. Get off my lawn. Oh, man. Yeah. Clint Eastwood is kind of my hero when it comes to that sort of thing. Uh yeah, so uh, again, the city can I'm stop. I'm glad me. you live in Bolivar and I live in Santa Barbara. <laughs> That's certainly fair. Uh, I think I might be glad about that too, honestly, but possibly for different reasons. Uh, 
so yeah, the, again, the city can stop me from doing something that, uh, that I want to do, no matter how much I, I really want to do it. There's an exercise of power there uh, that defines the relationship between me and my neighbors and me and the whole community. Uh, now, the problem is that's a very modern definition of politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, Plato, Aristotle, Aquinas, uh, all of the rest of the pre-moderns w- would say that in this definition, I've, I've left out the most important part. Uh, I've igno- ignored the role of transcendent virtue. Uh, so what I've defined isn't really politics at all. It's it's just naked power. Uh, instead, it's it's a corruption of politics or a, or a deficient view of politics or something along those lines. Uh, now, now, no doubt we'll we'll have much more to say about that as the as the show progresses. Uh, Ed, what what have I missed here? What have I left out about government? Yeah, I, mean, I think that's that's all exactly right. One thing that I think is helpful to keep in mind is you know you think about the Greek uh, the word politics and its origins, right? And it comes from the Greek word polis which is just like the city-state. Um, and the way in which the ancients and the way in which moderns think about politics is so radically different that in some ways it's, it's difficult to appreciate. Um, we are so steep within thinking about politics in one particular kind of a way. And um, yeah, and so for the ancients, Politics is maybe describes social life a little bit um, more completely. And you can see this difference between the way in which ancients and moderns think about politics by just sort of thinking about like the great ancient philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, right? So if you think back to your introductory philosophy class, when you read the Republic, um, the Republic is a book dedicated towards trying to understand what justice is. And Plato tries to illuminate. Plato is is interested in the first um, in the first instance in trying to understand what a just person is or what a just individual soul or psyche is. But the way that he gets at that is by saying, "Well, look, this individual soul or the individual psyche is it's like a small thing. Let's um, let's look at what a just polis, a just society, would look like." And then you can get a model of sort of like something writ large, the soul bigger. And once we understand what justice in what political justice or social justice is, then we'll have a better idea and we can sort of apply it back to to what the soul is. Yeah. And and, and sorry, go ahead. Oh, as I say, and there's a, there's a unity there, right? Because it's it's not when he's talking about justice in the soul. I mean, everything is included. It's, it's music and it's education yeah. and it's exercise. Yeah. And it, there's a, uh, uh, there's some idea that the politics and the individual and the community are not separate things. Yeah. Uh, we can talk about the state as a picture of the individual and the individual as a picture of the state because they, there's a, an organic, if I can use that buzzword, uh, an organic unity between the two, uh, that in the modern world we've, we've split apart. Yeah. Yeah. And then importantly for Aristotle, the way in which you achieve justice in the soul, individual justice, is by living within a just society, right? So political life then becomes an essential way in which you can strive to achieve the good life for yourself, right? Um, it's about individual flourishing. And, uh, and then similarly in Aristotle, it's like political life becomes the way in which you achieve the good life, given the kind of creature that you are. It's, it's, it's the setting in which you act out and instantiate the virtues. And so, so um, political life is, is tied to your living the best kind of life that you can live, 
given the kind of creature that you are. Sort of your best life now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Without the heresy. Uh, that's 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 right. right. Um, no heresy in this podcast. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, like, there's this deep way in which, like, the city, the polis, society, is the means in which you attain the best life for a creature like for you. It's necessary for virtue. And that's a very weird and a very different way of thinking about political life from the modern perspective. And when you look at the classic modern political philosophers, and by, and by modern, I don't mean like contemporary, but I mean arising in the modern age, sort of starting with Hobbes and Locke. The question that, that they are most interested in, the great social contract theorists of the modern age, is trying to justify the coercive power of the state. So what is it that gives the king the right to rule you? What is it that justifies that power? So it, it turns and, is, and it, the, the modern philosophers, especially, especially Locke, they're chafing against the divine right to rule. They are arguing for the idea that citizens have particular kinds of rights that need to be respected by government. And, you know, what is it, what is it that justifies the coercive power of the state? Which, which isn't to say that the ancients didn't think about that. That's, that's right. But you can see that the very way in which they conceive of the political sphere is like radically different right. than the way in which the ancients thought about it. And I guess you've already you've already answered this by mentioning Hobbes and Locke, but we've been throwing around ancient and modern uh, as as two different times. Uh, how how would you divide those two? Oh, you know, this is the kind of question that you would probably be better at answering than I would. The you know, for what it's for what it's worth, uh, you know, Coyle is a political theorist who works in a political science department. I am a political philosopher, let's say, who works in a philosophy department. And while we are both political theorists of a sort, the actual way in which our disciplines do business, business is like radically different. Um, my discipline, while the history of political thought is really, really important, it tends to be ahistorical in, in ways in which your discipline isn't. But, you know, so when, when I talk about ancient, I'm, I'm talking chiefly about Aristotle and Plato, um, though other people figure in important ways there. And I basically mean pre-Augustine. Okay. Okay. And when I say modern, I basically mean starting in the modern age, um, starting in the beginning of modernity as a, as, as an intellectual movement, uh, the growth and success of the natural sciences, the enlightenment in within Western and within Western political thought, I guess, starting with Hobbes, going going forward i was sort of hoping you had a, a good a historical answer that i could steal uh because on on our side of things uh when when you ask that where is the line between you know ancient medieval and on the one hand and modern on the other we kind of have to say sometime between 1300 and the french revolution mm -hmm. right because there's there's not there's not really a solid line where we that we can draw so even with someone like hobbes uh, Hobbes is is writing within his own political tradition that is already developed. Mm -hmm. uh, so even though he says, "Hey, I'm making this stuff up," uh, mm -hmm. and not not you know making it up, but I'm I'm uh, reasoning my way through this uh, in in terms of original thought. He's he's really not. He's he's dealing with political thought that already exists. Uh, that's yeah. Involved. 
So yeah. I, was, I was hoping we had some some ahistorical perspective here that uh, that, that, uh, that change. The problem is by the time you get to the French Revolution, uh, to some extent, by the time you get to the American Revolution, you are you're definitely in the modern world. The, the changes yeah. happened. Yeah. Uh, the the big question is when did it happen before that? And there's just we don't have a satisfying answer. Yeah, that's right. And I, there are important ways in which the moral landscape, the kinds of concepts, normative concepts that people take for granted, right? They're very different in the American Revolution than they are in um, medieval Europe, let's say. Right. Or, or um, even in the colonization 150 years earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but as you say, um, it's, it's not like there are hard dividing lines in which you can sort of point and be like, hey, there it is. That's something different. I mean, Hobbes, I think, is 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 an important figure, and I would describe him as being a modern figure. Sure, sure, absolutely. But there are certainly ways in which he is tied, and he's very deeply tied into the medieval tradition, the medieval jurists before him. Um, certain the concept we think of the concept of rights as being a very modern concept, but it arises in the medieval jurists in really important ways. Right. Um, and so there certainly is a kind of a thread or continuity running from um you know running from the ancients straight through to Donald Trump um and you know there are important parts of the melody that change in dramatic ways but but nevertheless is a kind of a continuous a continuous thread so just just to clarify you are going on record as saying that Donald Trump is the philosopher king uh yeah something okay, like that. I, I caught that about a thread between you know plato and, and trump so uh yeah uh, again I, I think that's obviously a, a difficult question i did think it was interesting that you you called ancient sort of plato through augustine and then uh picked up with hobbes after that you know there's there's a thousand years in between what what do you do with you, that yeah i'm probably the last person you should ask, <laughs> ask that question too okay fair enough. I mean, philosophy tends to be ahistorical and um, of people working within that discipline, I tend to be particularly contemporary in my focus. Right. Which again, gets us back to the, you're, you're, you're really the expert in an area here. And I'm the one who sort of dabbles uh, as occasion uh, allows. Yeah. Expert might be uh, too strong a word, but anyway. <laughs> right. Uh, well, given that we've made such truck about us being Christians, uh, we ought to say something briefly about Christianity and politics, yeah, uh, unless we yeah. have anything to add with the uh, uh, what is politics subject. Uh, no, no. Uh, so, so Ed, in in, uh, in 20 words or less, what does the Bible say about government? Yeah, so I don't know about the 20 minutes, uh, 20 words bit, <laughs> but um, maybe one thing that I would want to say on this particular point as we think about the relation between Christianity and politics is to say that like, there is a kind of a temptation um, maybe less among American evangelicals than among other kinds of American Protestants. But I think there's this real temptation to think about Christianity and politics or religion and politics in very dualistic terms, thinking of them as being very separate things. Christianity, religion is about spirituality it's not about the rough and tumble of this world. It's about inner peace, let's say, or it's about what happens to us when we die. Um, so there's this 
you know, religion is about what is perfect. It's about one's relationship to God. It's not about real life. It's not about what happens in this world. It's certainly not about the rough and tumble of politics in its contemporary forms. Um, so I, there is a very real temptation, I think, to say that these things don't have anything to do with each other. And I would really want to quibble with that for a lot of different reasons. Now, look, you know, we could talk forever about and and we'll continue to talk about, about these things, um, about political theology. But it's important to remember that one of God's first acts in his project of redeeming the world. So God creates the world and it's good and it is perfect. And then the world Adam and Eve fall and the world gets broken, but God doesn't throw the project away. He begins the slow process of fixing it. And one of his first acts was to call Abraham. And in calling Abel, Abraham, he is constituting a people or a nation to be, it's a nation of priests, right? They are God's vehicle of redeeming the world. Um, so intrinsically, God's act of redemption is social or political. Um, now, look, obviously, looking at Israel as a state and looking at Israel for guidance as to how we should think about politics is there's a lot of theorizing that needs to, to get us um, from the Bible to a theory. But in any case, it's worth just sort of noting that God's one of God's very first acts in trying to redeem the world was a political act. Yeah, how do you And then that? I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, how do you how do you tie that then uh, which which maybe this is where you were going to go. I'm sorry to to cut you off, but how do you tie that then into the church? Yeah, again, so very super complicated, a, a lot of theorizing, but equally, I mean, this is super important. We live in the well now 21st century we live in the United States, this country that is highly individualistic. Christians tend to think about themselves insofar as they think about their vocation and activity as Christians in an individualistic way, right? We are all of us lone rangers doing God's work out in the world. When importantly, um, the church is, is God's is God's is God's vehicle for engaging the world. He calls us to participate in this. He calls us to participate in the body of Christ, right? And so, while it's not like we lose our individuality, and it's certainly the case that our individual actions matter, um, we engage the world first and foremost by being a part of the people of God. Um, so, I, I think that that continues and. That is a huge error that contemporary, especially American evangelicals make when they think about the meaning of what it is to be a Christian and how we ought to engage the world, right? We are not um, eyes or hands or individual body parts. That sounds like a creepy horror movie, like, you know, that, that the lone hand um, crawling across the grass to do God's work, right? We are part of the body of Christ and we engage the world by being a part of the people of God. That's super important. And then just the other point that I was going to make is, you know, you think about kingdom of God talk or you think about kingdom of heaven talk 
in the New Testament when Jesus talks about those things. And again, that kind of talk often gets spiritualized in really deep ways. And we think about when God, you know, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about what happens in the spiritual ether or what happens to us when, uh, when we die. And like, that's just not true. Um, N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, the New Testament scholar is really compelling when he writes about this in books like, I mean, he probably writes about it in 20 different, 20 different places, but you think about how he writes about it in his big scholarly tome, um, Jesus and the Victory of God, or in um, this other book that's a little bit more accessible called The Challenge of Jesus. And he makes this point that like kingdom of God talk to your average first century uh, Jewish person living in the Holy Land under Roman occupation was political talk. That was fighting words. That, that was why the Romans were sort of very nervous about Jesus, because to talk about the kingdom of God wasn't to talk about what was going to happen to you after you die. It was to talk about God fulfilling his promises, returning to dwell with his people in the temple in Jerusalem. Right, a continuation right? of the old nation state. Yeah, exactly. It was about God reestablishing his very real reign on earth, right? So it was to talk about the here and now, our very real social and political life. It, you know, you say kingdom of God to your average first century Jewish person, and they weren't sort of thinking about, they weren't imagining this picture of themselves floating around in the heavenly ether, strumming um, harps with angels' wings, right? They were thinking about they were thinking about, you know, the Messiah that they were expecting was like Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? right. Was going to be the tough guy, military leader, who's going to take up arms against their Roman oppressors and drive them out and reestablish God's actual reign in the temple in Jerusalem. Right. So just like David did with the Philistines. Exactly. The son of David, which also kind of sounds you know movie-ish but uh the, the son of david is going to come along and do exactly the same thing but with the romans exactly yeah 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 so it, it, exactly um it's very you know so it's obviously jesus had a very different idea about what that was actually going to look like but nevertheless kingdom of god talk kingdom of heaven talk wasn't airy spiritual talk it was talk about the rough and tumble social and political lives of God's people. And maybe at some point we'll need to do an N.T. Wright episode. I've, I have not read any of his work, so that might be a good way to force me to do it. Yes. You know, so for me, um, like Tom Wright has just been super, super influential and, and opened up, you know, really different ways of, of thinking about the way that I think about the vocation of what it is to be a Christian. Sure. Um, how about you, Coyle? Uh, what are your, I took considerably less or more than 20 words. I'll give you the same license to say something about uh, Christianity and politics. Yeah, I'd say, uh, uh, I'd say two or three things, depending on uh, how the, how the mood happens to take me when, it, whenever I'm being asked that. Uh, first, the, uh, the, the government, uh, any, any government uh, is going to fit into the general scheme of creation. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that is, uh, it was created good, uh, but is now fallen. So when we, we look at any given government in the world, and uh, what, we, what we see is uh, we, we see exactly what Paul said in Romans 13, you know, the government uh, which had executed Jesus unjustly and was going to persecute the church is there to do good. 
that, that's not a contradiction. Both of those things are true in the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the government keeps order in society. That that exercise of power is, is very important, and that is a divinely ordained and sh- sanctioned uh, exercise of, of politics. Uh, but it also does so in a way that is sinful. So again, mm-hmm. both of those things are true. We have to remember both of those uh, when we're thinking about government. So one thing to remember, it, it is just another part of creation. Uh, so we could talk about anything else. We could talk about the family. We could talk about nature. We could talk about you know, academia. I mean, again, pick your topic. Uh, it's part of the created order. Uh, interestingly, mm-hmm. and that's where the, the kingdom of God sort of comes in as a uh, uh, as an exception to that because it is recreated, you know, supernaturally mm-hmm. created. But again, we can, mm-hmm. we can get to that later. Uh, second, uh, the second thing I'd, I'd say we need to remember is that uh, if we are being as generous as we can possibly be, uh, as Christians, politics should never be more than our fourth highest priority. Uh, so we, we've got God as our number one priority, sort of our personal relationship with God, uh, our relationships in the church uh, and our rela- relationships in the family. And I, I wouldn't try to say which of those, the second and third are most important. So God is definitely number number one. Uh, which matters more, your your church or your family? Well, we have obligations both places, right? Uh, family was created first. You have a family in the Garden of Eden, uh, but the church will last forever. So I don't know how to balance that. So I just say those are two and three, and you can kind of plug mm-hmm. them in wherever you want. In either case, they're both more important than politics. Uh, politics then only comes in at, at number four, uh, and that's assuming we're excluding things like friendships and, and other sorts of relationships that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, hopefully we can we can remember that and, and invest our attention and our emotions accordingly. Uh, if, if your spiritual life uh, is healthy, if your church life is healthy, and if your family life is doing well, uh, you, you really shouldn't be that concerned uh, about Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Bernie Sanders, or Hillary Clinton. Right? If, if we are if we are letting this kind of fourth tier thing disrupt our lives, we've made a mistake in our categorization in our in our approach to the world as Christians. Uh, it, it may even be that we have to sort of ask ourselves, am I a Christian if I am over investing in something that exists only as part of the created order? Uh, it doesn't mean you're not, but it, it does mean that we, we need to be thinking well about that. Uh, and then third. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No. So I was just going to say, so that's certainly true over investing, but that's not to say that we shouldn't be concerned about it. Right. No, no, it's, it's, it's still in, it's still in the list of priorities. Uh, it is just not nearly as important as what's going on every week in your local church. That, right. that is vastly more important. Uh, the, uh, the members meeting coming up this, this Sunday is far more important than the election coming up this November, uh, at least from the perspective of a Christian. I, I think that's, that's sort of a scriptural approach. Yeah, and what happens if at the members' meeting they're collecting funds for Donald Trump's presidential campaign? Then you need to find another church. Uh, I so. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, now, to, to clarify that, I would say that with any political candidate, uh, Donald Trump or otherwise. Uh, but may, maybe we need to do an episode on endorsing from the pulpit because uh, I think it is a, a functionally unwise approach, which becomes even more complicated when what do you do when you have a minister running for office? Uh-huh. Uh how, how how do you balance that well? Is, yeah. is he allowed to endorse yeah. himself from the pulpit? And, yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe yeah. we need to do an episode on that. And uh oh and, and when I'm when I'm really feeling cranky, uh, and I'm talking about this in class uh, in, in my rural Missouri uh classroom, uh, I will often say the third thing to do is to pay your taxes because that's 
you know, the one thing that Jesus commands is give to Caesar things that are Caesar's. And we could talk about what all that means, but at the very least, it certainly means pay your taxes. Uh, and that always sets my, uh, some of my more libertarian students on edge. Uh, and again, I know we'll be talking more about that. Uh, yeah. I, I'm also somewhat influenced. My wife used to be a tax attorney for the federal government. So there's, there's, there's some oh. idea that, uh, you know, you get into a lot of trouble if you don't. Sleeping with the enemy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if, if we're seeing them as the enemy, yeah. Uh, Anyways, um, well, we'll obviously have lots of follow-up conversations on these things and talk about them regularly. Yeah, uh, Ed, what do we have on tap for, for next time? Yeah, so uh, for our next podcast, we thought that it would be uh, interesting and important to try to better understand the foundational kinds of normative frameworks that shape the way that uh, American Christians think about political morality and political life that sort of underwrite the conversations, the debates that we have about, about political parties and candidates and public policies and things like that. So we're going to sort of start a series on looking at the political ideologies of conservatism and liberalism, starting off with one or two episodes on the question, what is conservatism for next time? So do stay tuned for that episode. And that's what we've got for you today from the City of Man. This is Coyle Neal encouraging you to render unto Caesar things that are Caesar's and unto God things that are God's. This land is your land and this land is my land From the California to the New York Island From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters This land was made for you and me I went a walk in that ribbon of high.